0: The source of the speeches I use here on the Choice Voice podcast comes from a list of the top 100 American speeches of the 20th century. This list is compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of 137 leading scholars of American public address. My choice of speeches should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered great speeches. Lyndon Bain Johnson's We Shall Overcome Speech, from 15 March 1965, Part 2. As a man whose roots go deeply into Southern soil, I know how agonizing racial feelings are. I know how difficult it is to reshape the attitudes and the structure of our society. But a century has passed, more than a hundred years since the Negro was freed, and he is not fully free tonight. It was more than a hundred years ago that Abraham Lincoln, a great president of another party, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But emancipation is a proclamation and not a fact. A century has passed more than a hundred years since equality was promised, and yet the Negro is not equal. A century has passed since the day of promise, and the promise is unkept. The time of justice has now come. I tell you that I believe sincerely that no force can hold it back. It is right in the eyes of man and God that it should come. And when it does, I think that day will brighten the lives of every American. For Negroes are not the only victims. How many white children have gone uneducated? How many white families have lived in stark poverty? How many white lives have been scarred by fear because we've wasted our energy and our substance to maintain the barriers of hatred and terror? And so I say to all of you here and to all in the nation tonight that those who appeal to you to hold on to the past Do so at the cost of denying you your future. This great, rich, restless country can offer opportunity and education and hope to all. All black and white, all north and south, sharecropper and city dweller. These are the enemies. Poverty, ignorance, disease. They're our enemies, not our fellow man, not our neighbor. And these enemies too, poverty, disease, and ignorance, we shall overcome. Now, let none of us in any section look with prideful righteousness on the troubles in another section or the problems of our neighbors. There is really no part of America where the promise of equality has been fully kept. In Buffalo, as well as in Birmingham, in Philadelphia, as well as Selma, Americans are struggling for the fruits of freedom. This is one nation. What happens in Selma or in Cincinnati is a matter of legitimate concern to every American. But let each of us look within our own hearts and our own communities, and let each of us put our shoulder to the wheel to root out injustice wherever it exists. As we meet here, in this peaceful historic chamber tonight, men from the south, some of whom were at Iwo Jima, men from the north who have carried old glory to far corners of the world and brought it back without a stain on it, men from the east and from the west, all are fighting together and without regard to religion or color or region in Vietnam. Men from every region fought for us across the world 20 years ago. And now, in these common dangers and these common sacrifices, the South made its contribution of honor and gallantry no less than any other region in the Great Republic, and in some instances, a great many of them more. And I have not the slightest doubt that good men from everywhere in this country, from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Golden Gate to the harbors along the Atlantic, will rally now together in this cause to vindicate the freedom of all Americans. For all of us owe this duty, and I believe that all of us will respond to it. Your president makes that request of every American. The real hero of this struggle is the American Negro. His actions and protests, his courage to risk safety and even to risk his life, have awakened the conscience of this nation. His demonstrations have been designed to call attention to injustice, designed to provoke change, designed to stir reform. He has called upon us to make good the promise of America, and who among us can say that we would have made the same progress were it not for his persistent bravery and his faith in American democracy? For at the real heart of battle for equality is the deep-seated belief in the democratic process. Equality depends not on the force of arms or tear gas, but depends upon the force of moral right, not on recourse to violence, but on respect for law and order and there have been many pressures upon your president, and there will be others as the days come and go, but I pledge you tonight that we intend to fight this battle where it should be fought, in the courts and in the Congress and in the hearts of men. We must preserve the right of free speech and the right of free assembly, but the right of free speech does not carry with it, as has been said, the right to holler fire in a crowded theater. We must preserve the right to free assembly, but free assembly, does not carry with it the right to block public thoroughfares to traffic. We do have a right to protest, and a right to march under conditions that do not infringe the constitutional rights of our neighbors. And I intend to protect all those rights as long as I am permitted to serve in this office. We'll finish reading after this quick break. Now, back to where we left off. We will guard against violence, knowing it strikes from our hands the very weapons which we seek, Progress, obedience to law, and belief in American values. In Selma, as elsewhere, we seek and pray for peace. We seek order. We seek unity. But we will not accept the peace of stifled rights, or the order imposed by fear, or the unity that stifles protest. For peace cannot be purchased at the cost of liberty. In Selma tonight, and we had a good day there, as in every city, we are working for a just and peaceful settlement. And we must all remember that after this speech I am making tonight, after the police and the FBI and the marshals have all gone, and after you have promptly passed this bill, the people of Selma and the other cities of the nation must still live and work together. And when the attention of the nation has gone elsewhere, they must try to heal the wounds and to build a new community. This cannot be easily done on a battleground of violence, as the history of the South itself shows. It is in recognition of this that men of both races have shown such an outstandingly impressive responsibility in recent days, last Tuesday, again today. The bill that I am presenting to you will be known as a civil rights bill, but in a larger sense, most of the program I am recommending is a civil rights program. Its object is to open the City of Hope to people of all races because all Americans just must have the right to vote, and we are going to give them that right. All Americans must have the privileges of citizenship, regardless of race, and they are going to have those privileges of citizenship, regardless of race. But I would like to caution you and remind you that to exercise these privileges takes much more than just legal right. It requires a trained mind and a healthy body. It requires a decent home and the chance to find a job and the opportunity to escape from the clutches of poverty. Of course, people cannot contribute to the nation if they are never taught to read or write, if their bodies are stunted from hunger, if their sickness goes untended, if their life is spent in hopeless poverty just drawing a welfare check. So we want to open the gates to opportunity, but we're also going to give all our people, black and white, the help that they need to walk through those gates. My first job after college was as a teacher in Cotula, Texas, in a small Mexican-American school. Few of them could speak English, and I couldn't speak much Spanish. My students were poor, and they often came to class without breakfast, hungry, and they knew, even in their youth, the pain of prejudice. They never seemed to know why people disliked them, but they knew it was so, because I saw it in their eyes. I often walked home late in the afternoon after the classes were finished, wishing there was more that I could do. But all I knew was to teach them the little that I knew, hoping that it might help them against the hardships that lay ahead. And somehow, you never forget what poverty and hatred can do when you see its scars on the hopeful face of a young child. I never thought then, in 1928, that I would be standing here in 1965. It never even occurred to me, in my fondest dreams, that I might have the chance to help the sons and daughters of those students and to help people like them all over this country. But now I do have that chance, and I'll let you in on a secret. I mean to use it and I hope that you will use it with me. This is the richest and the most powerful country which ever occupied this globe. The might of past empires is little compared to ours, but I do not want to be the president who built empires or sought grandeur or extended dominion. I want to be the president who educated young children to the wonders of their world. I want to be the president who helped to feed the hungry and to prepare them to be taxpayers instead of tax eaters. I want to be the president who helped the poor to find their own way and who protected the right of every citizen to vote in every election. I want to be the president who helped to end hatred among his fellow men and who promoted love among the people of all races and all regions at all parties. I want to be the president who helped to end war among the brothers of this earth. And so, at the request of your beloved Speaker and the Senator from Montana, the Majority Leader, the Senator from Illinois, the Minority Leader, Mr. McCulloch, and other members of both parties, I came here tonight, not as President Roosevelt came down one time, in person, to veto a bonus bill, not as President Truman came down one time to urge the passage of a railroad bill, but I came down here to ask you to share this task with me and to share it with the people that we both work for. I want this to be the Congress, Republicans and Democrats alike, which did all these things for all these people. Beyond this great chamber, out yonder in 50 states, are the people that we serve. Who can tell what deep and unspoken hopes are in their hearts tonight as they sit there and listen? We all can guess from our own lives how difficult they often find their own pursuit of happiness, how many problems each little family has. They look most of all to themselves for their futures, but I think that they also look to each of us. Above the pyramid on the Great Seal of the United States, it says in Latin, God has favored our undertaking. God will not favor everything that we do. It is rather our duty to divine his will, but I cannot help believing that he truly understands and that he really favors the undertaking that we begin here tonight. And so ends part two. For this Choice Voice podcast, the Techno King is John C. Brandy, the Seagull Example, Shola Salako. Fact Checker, Abraham Lincoln, French Consultant, Virginia Mitchell, Media Expert, Favor, Abbasi E.K., Psychologist, Sigmund Freud, Rabbit Hole Advisor, Dr. Mark Parrott, Sound Designer, Google Amro Marconi, Spanish Consultant, Cameron J.K. Brandy, Videographer, Alfred Hitchcock, Audio Props Go to Les Paul, and Inspiration Goes to Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, and Bob Proctor. Also, we have a website, and you can subscribe to this podcast. You can even send us a video, audio, or text message, but of course, you'll have to head to the show notes either on your phone or on the web, to actually get links and stuff. Finally, you can find us on Podmatch, where we consider guests for this pod, as well as consider guesting on other people's pods. And really, finally, the music for a choice voice comes from the song Piano Background by Nick Simon Adams on freesound.org.